0: So, uh, if you have a Bible uh, with you, that's great. Uh, You might want to open up to the passage that you can see uh, on the screens there this morning. I do have uh, the words from the passage that will go up on the screen as we work through the passage this morning. But um, for sort of visual effect, I wanted to fit the whole thing on a slide, which means some people in the cheap cheap. seats. I nearly said that the wrong way. Uh, might not be able to see every word. So if you've got it in front of you, that's great. <laughs> By nearly swearing. Yeah, that is a good start. So um, we've got some plans this year to kind of dip into some some uh, big, big themes and topics from scripture in a similar way to last year where we had uh, really over the course of 2019 this big mega theme uh, this sort of series uh, within which there was some mini-series about exile. Um, that was really, uh, I think, valuable for us last year, and so we're going to do a similar thing this year. But as we um, get organised on that front and, and get some of the big pieces into place, uh, you'll, you might have picked up that... Uh, people are sort of getting free hits for a little while. So it was great last week to hear a bit of what's been on Joy's heart next week. Uh, I believe we're hearing from Clem similarly, something that God's saying to him. I am just maybe not so great at hearing from God. So I'll, I thought I'd let you in on my, my cheat uh, uh, this morning. And um, what I often do when I'm a bit stuck is I, I go to the lectionary. And um, some of you who've been with us for a while might have picked up that we reference this from time to time. The lectionary is a sort of arrangement of readings from scripture uh, that's fairly commonly utilised by all, all parts of the church around the place. It's maybe a little rare for Pentecostal churches. There are what they call liturgical Pentecostal churches that... That also reference this arrangement of scriptures, Um, but uh, we've heard testimonies from um, people at Cornerstone who've talked about how rich it is that they meet a Catholic or Anglican brother or sister on the train, they start talking about God, and they realise they've been looking at the same parts of scripture, and that's because of the lectionary. So basically, Catholics, Anglicans, Methodists um, use something a bit like this, and um, You can sort of subscribe to it on your calendar uh, if you have a Google Calendar thing going on through the website. Also, if you just Google it, um, there's a website there that you're not going to be able to read uh, that comes up from uh, a seminary called Vanderbilt, and they've done this really great job of arranging the lectionary with artwork and prayers and whatnot. It's not so much a reading plan, for scripture, as it is uh, a way of organising worship. So uh, I find it useful. Some people do use it as a bit of a reading plan, but if I sort of need some inspiration, it's amazing how often I'll go there and the psalm of the day will speak right into something that's going on for me. And um, here's an illustration that you might be able to see. We... uh, you know, we'd be used to the idea of celebrating Christmas or celebrating Easter. The lectionary sort of works on the idea that actually the whole calendar is God's, not just those two times of year. And um, you can see uh, for half of the year, you're really in the Gospels following the story of Jesus right through as presented in the Gospels. And in the other half of the year looks at pretty much everything else. So it's like a three-year cycle um, that's where I'm getting my passage from today. It's just a, by way of explaining. If you want to check it out, it's worth checking out. Again, it's one of those things, we're not super, you know, it's not um, It's not an article of faith for us. You don't have to say that you're going to subscribe to this on your calendar to be a part of Cornerstone at all, but it's a resource that you might find useful. And um, one of the passages... Uh, that we're going to look at today comes from today uh, in the lectionary, as I mentioned. Many Christians around the world are observing a sort of a feast day or a day where we think about the baptism of Jesus. Um, So if you looked at the lectionary today, you'd find Matthew 3, 13 to 17. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan River to be baptised by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfil all righteousness. And so John consented to the baptising of Jesus. It says in verse 16, And when Jesus had been baptised, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and a light. On him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Really interesting story. What I'm going to do today is not sort of do an in depth exegesis or analysis of this whole story. We're actually going to Isaiah, as I've mentioned, but I thought it would be a bit of a useful opportunity to maybe show you some of, to use a kind of mathematical term, some of the workings behind why. Uh, Isaiah 42 is an appropriate passage to look at if we're thinking about the baptism of Jesus. I don't know uh, if you're unfortunate enough to do the more difficult mathematics uh, at high school. I don't know why, but I subjected myself to them. And um, there was some value, apparently, in the teacher showing us how he got the result she got the result that she got. It was all lost on me. Uh, Theoretically, I get how it would have been helpful for me to understand why they did it that way. Um, As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of one of Aesop's fables about the donkey who carries the bag of salt, the two bags of salt. Does anyone know that story? So there's a donkey and his uh, master has loaded him up with these two heavy sacks of salt and he's walking along the riverside when he loses his footing and falls into the river. Now, as the donkey's kind of getting pulled out of the river, his load becomes lighter as the salt dissolves, right? So the next day, the donkey uh, is loaded up by his master with these two big bags of cotton. And uh, he's quite grateful that it's, it's a lighter load than the day before. But as he gets down to the river, he's like, this worked out really well for me yesterday. When I jumped in the river, all of a sudden my load was lighter. The donkey pretends to fall into the river, goes into the water, and then comes up, and the load is significantly heavier, right? And isn't it the case that um, in life we can sort of think that we've learned a lesson that applies to one situation, and then if we try and use those same principles in another situation that's different, we can end up somewhere quite different. And um, if, you know, that's significant in any part of life, I think it's really significant with scripture and reading the Old Testament. Um, Growing up, I remember hitting these moments consistently where I was confused by what appeared to be a kind of dissonance between the Old and the New Testament. Um, And uh, I even, you know, there's lots of resources around that are unhelpful. There's Christians who um, do unhelpful things with the Old Testament. Uh, Actually, the equation between the Old Testament and the New Testament balances. It's really beautiful as you get to know it. But if you don't understand the workings of it, it's possible that you can come out with unhelpful doctrines like trying to impose, you know, some kind of legal stuff from the Old Testament onto the church. Um, uh, even with prophecy, and we're going to look at prophecy a bit this year, that's why I thought it would be useful to show you some of the workings here, Um, you know, it can have effects, say, on international relations. Uh, That's how big it gets. A a country that maybe has uh, Christians uh, who are making policy can be interpreting prophecy rightly or wrongly, and then making huge, important decisions on... Uh, Things like where embassies are and how they relate to certain governments and, you know, who's Gog and who's Magog and all that fun stuff. So I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of all your questions about prophecy this morning. I'm definitely not going to talk about who's Gog and who's Magog. Um, Sorry? Yeah, yeah, well, we might leave embassies in the rearview mirror. All I'm saying is um, you don't want to be dragging around Two heavy loads full of very damp cotton (laughs) there. So, um, Isaiah 42. Don't get too hung up if you can't read it. I'll, I'll highlight little sections as we go for emphasis. But it says this. If you've got it in front of you, you can read along. Here is my servant who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Now, for many of us as we've read that, it's evoking things for us and we might have um, some idea uh, what's going on in that passage. Um, But bear with me, we're going to do some of the workings as we look at this passage. Critically, um, people will read this passage and they will identify the servant um, who I've highlighted in yellow as key to understanding this passage. And we might even find that there's different understandings of who that servant is um, in this room. But the servant, uh, the voice in this passage, identifies as being... Pretty significant, and what's going on in this passage? Um, we'll find uh, variations of throughout Scripture. So we've got the word of God coming, right? Uh, this is uh, from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, and prophets are people who bring the word of God. So it comes to the smiley, blue-faced individual, uh, the prophet. Isaiah. And he does what prophets do where he relays this word to God's people. So I've got a little symbol there, the star of David, it might be a little anachronistic, um, but representing God's people. And some of the prophets you might know will single out just say the southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, Some will speak to the northern tribes. Isaiah seems to be speaking to the whole nation of Israel, which is those 12 tribes represented by 12 stars here. So someone receiving the word of God and the word of God being for God's people. All of the prophets work like that. A word from God to his people. And just to pick some interesting sort of eyeballs out of uh, this passage. Here is my, here's that key servant whom I uphold. Uh, the prophet's declaring, my chosen one in whom I delight. So he's taking on God's voice here, the prophet, and delivering this message as in God's voice. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now... It makes sense that this is kind of Israel language. If the role of the prophet is to speak God's word to God's people, and Isaiah is an ancient Israelite, that he is speaking God's word to God's people. This was always God's intention through Israel, that like he promised to Abraham, Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, would be Um, a representative of God in the world that would help to establish God's justice. A little further on, you see there in the yellow, he says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. How were God's people to do this? Well, they were to live as representatives of God's nature. I, the Lord, am holy, so you should be holy as well, right? You, You probably heard that many times if you've read the Old Testament, goes on, I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. Again, if you know anything about the Old Testament, about the story of scripture, that makes sense too. So um, God says to Abraham, through your descendants, all people will be blessed. The nations shall come to a knowledge of God, shall be blessed by me through you. Now, I don't know if it's a new thing for you to think of this servant in terms of Israel. Uh, you might have jumped to assuming that this is about Jesus. Now, that's not a wrong assumption, but again, we're looking at the workings here. Okay, So, is it um, unique in Scripture? Am I just making it up that God would talk about Israel as his son or his servant. In Hosea, we find this, just one example. I could pick many out. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So here again is a prophet speaking about God's concern at that time in the people of Israel in terms of his son. Isaiah 41 just precedes the passage that we're looking at today, but you Israel, my servant, Jacob whom I have chosen, offspring of Abram who I love, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its father's corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I chose you and didn't reject you. So pretty clear in this passage actually, at least if we're thinking in Isaiah's context, that we're The passage is talking about the servant. That servant is Israel. And this is one of those examples because we're so familiar, I would imagine, with the idea that Isaiah points to Jesus, right? And uh, this this passage is from a section of, uh, of Isaiah's prophecies often called the suffering or the reluctant servant. The reluctant servant to the nations. If you're like me, you're raised to go, that's Jesus. Now, that's not wrong, but why? (laughs) So we're doing the workings here. If we think that the servant is Jesus, not Israel, why? We're getting into Isaiah's world just a little bit here, and we see Isaiah might not have had Jesus in mind. Now, if you know Isaiah's prophecy... He does predict this figure, this significant figure for the nation of Israel for the Jews called the Messiah, right? And we as Christians believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But actually for Jews, the Messiah wasn't a divine figure. They perhaps didn't anticipate the fullness of what God would do through the Messiah, exactly who the Messiah was. They anticipated that it would be someone who came along and did what? delivered Israel, because God's concern is Israel, his people there. And it's an example, I suggest, of um, a dynamic that I think Graham's pointed to with this phrase before. As much as the Bible might be written for you, in fact, I would hope uh, that for you as most Christians, if you identify as a Christian here this morning, it's kind of the key by which you make sense of God's revelation to you. At the same time, Uh, I think we're wise to kind of heed the caution of people who think about this, where they say, actually, as much as it's for you, it might not be written to you. And to understand what it might say for you, you might have to understand a little bit better, or as well as possible, who it's written to, what it's saying in its original context. And that's why someone like um, Jackie Gray, who's the head of... um, the Biblical Studies faculty at Alpha Crucis, where Chris works. Um, She's written this book called Them, Us, and Me, um, where she says, if you're reading the Old Testament, you need to work out the significance of a passage for them, the ancient uh, Israelites. Then you can apply that passage to what it might mean for us as the church, and from there you look at what application it might have to you as an individual. And in showing you uh, the workings this morning, why Isaiah 42 is a passage that we would read if we're thinking about Jesus' baptism, I want to get us to think about the way that Jesus and that little kind of slightly differently shaded blue-faced man is Jesus. I know it's an amazing likeness. You don't know what he looks like. Uh, He might look like that. (laughs) Uh, If if a grade 8 maths teacher like me is drawing him in a hurry. Uh, The way that Jesus actually is the fulfilment of God's promises to Israel. The way that Jesus um, is the fulfilment of God's plans, not just to us as the Gentiles, but to Israel and to the whole world. Jesus uh, is the perfect servant. So Isaiah's talking about Israel as God's servant. If you know the story of scripture, you know that the problem was that as much as it might have been God's intention for Israel to be a blessing to the nations, many times they weren't, right? They didn't serve as a light to the Gentiles. As much as God uh, did this amazing thing where he sort of adopts Israel as his children, as his son, they were not a great son a lot of the time. Jesus is perfect in both those senses. He's the perfect, perfect servant who serves as a light to the Gentiles. And we see that by the very fact that most of us here this morning aren't Jewish. right? And yet we've come to worship Israel's God, Yahweh. But also that he is this faithful Son, that Israel, being made up of humans like us, couldn't completely be. And so Jesus um, is this fulfilment of God's plan for Israel. And we see this uh, through this strange story that um, comes up for many Christians this morning. What is going on with John baptising Jesus? Well, I've talked about this before. Baptism is really uh, amongst many things, but in this case, primarily about the Exodus. It's all about Israel, right? So um, I looked at um, Hosea before. God calls... um, the slave Hebrew people out of Egypt, he frees them, he takes them through these waters to their freedom, these waters of death that drown their enemies, he confers on them this identity of children, he gives them promise and a destiny, he gives them a land that he takes them to. And yet, in the first century, this moment uh, that the Nigerian artist Jesus uh, Muffa has um, depicted... Jews weren't feeling particularly like the promises of God were true to them, right? They're occupied by uh, the Roman Empire. Their leadership, both spiritual and political, is corrupt. They feel, even though they're in their homeland, in the promised land, like exiles in the promised land. Rome's pulling the strings. The temple seems to be corrupt. The king is not anything like David. David. And so John's message saying, actually, if you feel like an alien, if you feel like an exile, if you feel like the promises of God for you as God's people aren't as true as they could be, come out into the wilderness like your ancestors and come through these exodus waters again. But it's going to be different this time. You're not going to be able to blame anyone else. I want you to take personal responsibility And say, actually, we haven't been the light to the Gentiles that we're supposed to be. We haven't been the faithful son. We haven't been the good servant. Take personal responsibility. See that your sinfulness as an individual who might be part of the nation of Israel has something to do with that. Come and I will baptise you through those waters of death. And you can come up into what God has truly called you into. And the Gospels say that this was such a resonant message that You know, there were crowds coming out of the local towns into the wilderness to go through those Exodus waters again. And Jesus so resonates with this, that he allows John, his cousin, a mere mortal, to baptise him. And it goes further, I want to suggest, that Jesus doesn't just identify with it but he fulfills it. He embodies it, in a sense. And uh, I uh, mentioned this passage already, Matthew 3.17, where it says, And a voice from heaven says, As Jesus comes out of those Exodus waters, This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Jesus is doing this thing here. With Israel's history and we can't understand what's going on in Jesus if we don't understand Israel's story but if you've read the gospels through this lens you'll see it's so much bigger than this right the relationship between Jesus and Israel the way that Jesus comes to be the true Israel the faithful servant the good son goes on and on and on so As God chooses 12 tribes, Jesus chooses 12 disciples, right? And through, um, and we don't have a lot of time to get into this, but through Jesus' incarnation, life, ministry, uh, death and resurrection, he establishes a new people of God in such a way that Jesus doesn't just sort of continue Israel's story, but there's this sense in which what Jesus does is he makes it better because he is a better son and a better servant, which is good news for us if we're Gentiles and most of us are. And so if you um, have been tempted to read say the promises of the Old Testament and claim them for yourself. We made a few jokes looking at Jeremiah a bit last year about how, um, you know, as much as we might love the magnet on our fridge that says, um, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you. Well, actually, if you read that verse in context, it's like, I'm going to prosper you in Babylon, and maybe that's a little bit sobering. Um, at the same time... Uh, Because of the way that Jesus does this, he embodies Israel's story, he fulfills it. If we read the word of God in scripture, in the Old Testament, that comes to a prophet, which is actually God's word to his people, Israel, we're kind of warranted to look for a connection, the way that that word might be coming to Jesus, actually, as the true son as the faithful servant. And so, you know, if you want to kind of spend a bit more time meditating on that fridge magnet uh, and claim those promises, I don't think there's a huge problem with it. But what we're trying to do here is, I actually want to point to the fact that it's probably even better than you realise, the story. The promises are more significant than you realise. And you only really get that when you go deep, when you don't just read them on a surface level, but you go, what was God doing through Israel? Through a prophet, through Israel, what does that mean with relation to Jesus? Now that Jesus um, does this thing in the incarnation, ministry, suffering, death, resurrection, and I've got the cross there, um, he's not just equal to, but greater than Israel, is the fulfilment of God's plans and purposes for Israel, it means that we are, in a very significant sense, the new people of God. Now, I'm not saying, and this will be a bit of a, a bell for some people, I'm not saying that that means that, you know, whatever's going to happen through Israel is done. But just actually, if you don't um, get the magnitude of, of what Jesus is doing here, you can actually shortchange what Jesus is even going to do through Israel and for all people. So um, we can claim those promises from the Old Testament if we're willing to kind of track them through and see what they really mean. When um, we think about the promises and the plans that God had for Israel, Jesus, in the most significant sense, fulfills those. And so, here's the other great thing, and uh, this links back into a passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. In the incarnation, by Jesus becoming uh, flesh, becoming as our brother and sister, to use Hebrews and Romans language from last the last couple of weeks, through the cross, we actually and maybe I risk being a bit cheesy there, um, but we actually come to share in all the promises that Jesus uh, embodies and fulfills. Uh, it reminded me a bit as I was thinking about this, of Romans chapter 8, verse 17, where it says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So we can read uh, hope and take hope from from the prophetic, um, from the Old Testament, but it's because those promises, uh, what God intended to do through Israel, came to fruition and flower in the person of Jesus. So one way of thinking about it is that word of God that comes, say, to Israel, in the Old Testament, um, comes to prophets, oftentimes, comes to the authors of Scripture, is intended for Israel and God's people, because of Jesus, can come to us. Another way of thinking about it is reading Scripture, imagining who God's people are, imagining who God's children are. We can look at it a little bit like this. God's children are Israel... Jesus as the perfect son, the perfect servant. So uh, just one other example of that, you know, uh, the Israel, after going through those exodus waters, they wander around in the desert for 40 years. They do all sorts of dopey stuff. Jesus, after he passes through the exodus waters, what does he do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He resists temptation. He is the faithful son and servant and because of that, because he does that as a human being who shares our likeness and nature, we have this opportunity because we're in him through his incarnation, suffering, death and resurrection to be called sons and daughters of God. That's pretty good news, isn't it? So Romans, again, now if we are children, then we are heirs Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. I'm going to ask the, the band um, to come up. Um, I'm going to finish in a moment. But, you know, at the risk of this message just being a little bit sort of didactic and, and sort of classroom-ish, showing you the workings of the formula... I'd encourage you to go back to Scripture if you're engaging particularly with the Old Testament and begin to read it in this way. And particularly this year as we're going to spend some time in the Prophets. What are the implications of this equation for the way that we read the Prophets? Here's Isaiah 2 again. Uh, 42, I'm sorry. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. To read that again in light of this equation is to read it like this. Here is my servant Israel whom I uphold, my chosen people in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, Israel, and will bring justice to the nations. But then also to go, here is my servant whom I uphold, Jesus. Mindful of the ways that Jesus fulfills God's plans through Israel. And and here's the beauty and power of the gospel. In as much... As we have faith in Christ, in as much as we accept His suffering and death for us and are willing to enter into that, we can say, Here, in Christ, I'm God's servant, whom God will uphold. I'm God's chosen one, in whom He delights. God will put my, His Spirit in me. And through me, in Christ, bring justice to the nations. See, the beauty of this, it's not just that you have a stake as Jesus' brothers and sisters, as God's children in eternity, but actually your role is not benign. The prophets can speak to the fact that God is going to uh, use you in Christ to achieve all of that good and glorious stuff that he promised Abraham. That the prophecies say that Jesus will establish. We're not just sitting back watching, you know, the powers of the world crash into one another. We're not just sort of locked in a dark office trying to work out who Gog and Magog is. Actually, we're already just being salt and light if we accept gift that Jesus gives us. We can actually play a significant role through God's grace in Christ, in His suffering, in God's great redemptive plan. Isn't that good news? Would you stand? I want to pray for you before we just go into a little bit more worship. God, I thank you for the way that um, we can travel with this assurance that your word is good that it makes sense Uh, for myself even at times where I haven't been able to see that I thank you that the more that we go to your word the more we see that the equation balances we see that when scripture promises that you are good and you have good plans that that is really true Lord, I also thank you that we have the privilege here of standing at the sort of end of uh, a long line of you doing things through humans. Lord, I pray uh, that if we haven't um, opened our lives to the fact that through Jesus you want to, bring us into your story that we would reckon with that Lord Lord I pray that through the Spirit you would truly unite us in Christ that we would be operating in the world as Jesus did Lord that um, we would see great inheritance, even in the land of the living, that we would see your peace come, your justice come. Lord, I pray in the year ahead that you would continue to open Scripture up to us and it would continue to be better than we might have expected.